Amen. Let's jump right into chapter 7, if you will. I want to talk to you about um, where, where we are at present in chapter 7. And I pray tonight gives you a lot of answers. Uh, there will be a lot of backstory that we will need to have had to get to this point. So I hope you've been taking some good notes. This is kind of where we are in the timeline. I show this every week. That we're in this area called the tribulation period, a seven-year period of time where I believe and have taught, and I've tried to back it up spiritually, that at this point in time, the church age will have finished, and we will be moving into a different period of time of how God is going to count that time, the tribulation period, that we've seen as a seven-year period of time, and here it is laid out. And I didn't put everything, and some people may kind of disagree with it and disagree with, you know, kind of where it falls, but uh, it's a seven-year period of time with the first half being the tribulation is the first three and a half years. And most people who believe in the rapture believe we will, the church will leave before the green ever starts. We're out of here. That's what people would mean when they say pre-trib rapture is that I'm going to get out, if it's a seven-year period of time, the church is going to leave right at the beginning of the green line. Mid-tribulation is not an amount of time, it's a point in time. And we're going to spend a lot of time discussing it, uh, what it means, what it looks like, but that's chapters 10 through 15. And then what would be called the great tribulation, the last half would be uh, chapters 16 to 19 when we end the Satan's kingdom. It kind of plays out like this a little bit. I think you'll kind of see it in some highlighted points that I put up there for you that may make sense of just the things we're going to talk about. Uh, I'll leave it up there a minute just kind of let you run through it with your eyeballs or if you want to screenshot it on your phone. Kind of gives you a little bit of what's going on and at least... Uh, kind of an overview of what we're going to be talking about. And so last week I discussed in depth the 21 things that are going to come forth concerning the wrath of God and what that's going to look like at the first half of tribulation and then what it'll look like with the great tribulation. And I put those maps up last week to show you what that would look like. But to understand chapter 7... And what I've been saying and I've been teaching, I'm going to put up another uh, chart that I've referred to a lot. But this chart, you know, makes me ask some questions because as we taught this, I'm not going to belabor the point for time. But what we taught in the weeks past is that God deals with three groups of people, the Jews, the Gentiles, and the church. He deals with all of them very distinctly, very differently. And he's going to have, whatever he starts, he has to finish. And so what I believe and I've tried to teach is there's coming a finishing to the church. Now when I said that, and maybe it, it does bear you to ask the question, well if the church is done, then who are all these people that show up in the book of Revelation that are believers, that are saints, the ones that are beheaded, and how do they get born again if we're not here? How do they come to know Jesus if the church isn't here to witness to them? Especially if you take the thought if the church is gone, then the Holy Spirit must be gone, although I, I think that may err, because I, I'll, I'll tell you that in, in a little while of why I don't think that's true. 
but I think it's a valid question, and I'm going to try to answer it tonight from chapter 7. That if the church has been removed prior to the tribulation, how do people get born again? How do people come to faith in Jesus? And how do they know the gospel if we're the ones that were to be sharing the gospel and have come out? But chapter 7 is going to teach us something about the character of God in that, this is my opinion, that chapter 7 is God's method of how he's going to finish the Jewish and the Gentile finishing, how he's going to bring it all to an end. It's going to be the doorway where it all starts to make sense. Because if he's finished the church, he by nature has to finish the Jewish nation and he has to finish the Gentile nations. And so it bears uh, the thought to understand this, because I, I do think it's a great question. If the church is gone, who witnesses? How do people get born again? How does God maintain to the Jew to get the, the word to them? And how does he get the word to the Gentile? So here are the main players that we have in chapter 7. I'm going to give them to you, and then we're going to read about them. We have three main players that show up in Revelation 7, and they're very key to that question. They play a huge significant role to the question of, if the church is gone, then what about these saints? How do they get born again? Listen to this in Acts chapter 1. You know it, but I'll put it up there for you. There's going to be a lot of scripture given to you tonight. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be what? You'll be my witnesses telling what? Telling people about me everywhere. In Jerusalem, throughout Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So Jesus, at the start of the church, remember every beginning has an end. At the start of a church, what is his message to the church? His message to the church is, you will be witnesses. So that's the beginning point. My belief is, if that's the beginning point, that they will be witnesses, what would the end point be? They would stop being witnesses. If the beginning point is, you'll tell people about me, and that's your job, once I end you, what does the natural progression assume? Who will tell people then if I'm lost? So that's the question I'm going to put up. You can just write it down. If the earthly work of the church is finished via the rapture, how will Jews and Gentiles come to faith? Here's, now, when I say that the church is finished, I just want to be clear what I mean. I don't mean we stop being the church. We're always the church. We're the body of Christ for eternity. But what stops is our work on the earth for that period of time. So at the beginning of the church, you will be witnesses on the earth. But if the church is raptured, I'm not ending the church existing. I'm ending the work of the church on the earth. And the tribulation period is now the work of God, not through the church, but something else. God will still be working, God will still be moving, and God will still be doing what he's doing. He will just not do it through the church because their work of witnessing is finished, but it doesn't negate that God himself is finished. 
This is just a thought, but it's a good one. If the church is the only way for people to come to faith in Christ, how did Abraham come to faith in Christ? Because there was no church. How did Noah believe? How did Moses believe? If there's no church to witness to them, how do they come to faith in Christ? If we take that thought that the church is the only way God can save people, then we've got a whole problem with the Old Testament who are called saints. Because what we do know about the Old Testament, though they were not baptized into a body, though they were never filled with the Holy Spirit, though they were never baptized by the Spirit into a body called the church, God, who created it all, still saw them as righteous. They were righteous by faith. Though they weren't baptized in the church, they weren't born again, meaning the Spirit didn't live inside them. God didn't make his home inside them. That's the unique thing about the church. We're different than everything else. Everybody all the way from the beginning until the birth of the church, the way they were righteous was by faith. They weren't born again. They were righteous. In other words, they, they died. They went into a place of holding, waiting on the resurrection of Jesus. They were not born again saints. They walked on the earth. They walked in their carnal bodies. They did not have new life inside them because the Spirit of God did not dwell in people in the Old Testament. This is John the Baptist. When the Spirit came and landed on Jesus in Matthew 3, he said, or I think John 2 maybe, he said, I didn't even know that that would be the Son of God until the Spirit stayed on him. Because all throughout the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come and leave and come and leave. He'd come and touch Daniel, he'd leave. He'd touch Samson, he would leave. The Holy Spirit never stayed and God never indwelled his people. All through the Old Testament, they carried God's presence around in a box in a tent. But we, New Testament, are that box and tent now. We are the temple of the living God. He dwells in us. So, so that's what I mean by the church is distinctly different. We, we have God living inside us. That is a mind-blowing thought. But if you're a Christian... You literally believe that God dwells on the inside of you. It's not just you have a religious thought that Jesus is alive and I believe that and then therefore I'm a Christian. No, it's a lot deeper than that. The moment I confess Jesus is Lord and believe in my heart, God raised him from the dead, the spirit comes in me, makes my mortal body, uh, my, makes my spirit alive. He inhabits me. He dwells in me. I become one with Christ and then I'm baptized into something called the body that we would call the church. That's just so far over our heads because <laughs> we think Baptist, Methodist. So I think it's a, a good question but I would just superficially, I'm going to take it a little different way, but superficially is if they can be born and not born again, but made righteous through blood, through sacrifice in the Old Testament, I think the same could be through, true in the tribulation. So same question, but written a little differently. How makes it a little different because it puts it more on God. How will the eternal, all-powerful God Get the message of the gospel to the Jews and Gentiles that remain on the earth if the church is no longer at work on the earth. It's, a, it's just phrased differently, but rather than this time, how will people get saved if I'm not here? Because that makes me feel kind of arrogant. Wow, I need to be here to get people saved. 
But if my work is finished, how is that going to happen if I'm gone? I say, well, just take it off, I'm gone, and put it on who's the one over it all anyway. So this really helps us. How will an eternal, all-powerful God get the message of the gospel to who? The Jews and the Gentiles, the two groups of people that are still on the earth who don't know him. How will he make himself known to those people if we're done? So my question would be, and this is just a superficial one, do you believe he's big enough to pull that off? I mean, really, do you believe God is big enough to pull it off? Wait, this even hurts worse. Without your help. Okay, without your help. I know we really feel like he needs us. Now the fact is, watch, he doesn't need you because he made you on day six. He doesn't need your opinion. He doesn't need your comments. You came after it all. In other words, I did everything I need to do in my own wisdom, made you on day six. Why? Because I don't need you to give me your opinions or your wisdom. But out of mercy, he invites me into this to be part of it. Not because he needs me, but because he chooses to use me as part of bringing glory to the planet. It's a lot different when God just thunders down with a finger and forces people, but when he chooses to use those people to lead other people to him, it's majestic because they have a testimony of that love and that mercy and his kindness portrayed to them. So let's read now, if you will, all of chapter 7. It's 17 verses long. And then I want to take the next 45 minutes to answer this in depth and not just emotionally but with scripture that may help you. Verse 1, Revelation 7. After these things I saw four angels. Everybody say four angels. It's going to be key. Standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. He cried with a loud voice to the four angels. Everybody say four angels. To whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. And I heard the numbers of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Asher, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Levi, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Zebulon, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. After these things I looked and beheld a great multitude which no one could number of all the nations, tribes, people, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb and clothed with white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen. 
Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes and where did they come from? I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they, are, <clears throat> therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Say amen to that. <laughs> I want to just make a comment before I dive into this to answer the question, if the church is gone, what's going on and how do people come to know God and who are these people that are obviously thousands upon thousands that are beheaded for their belief in God, their belief in Jesus. And this is a thought that doesn't have to do with this chapter but with Revelation overall, but it will help you. I am finding that one of the most frustrating things to do is try to neatly fit Revelation into a timeline package. Like, when does this happen? Like, this chapter 7 is happening now. Well, I thought of it. And so I would just encourage you with this, and this is what I'm trying to do. Rather than neatly trying to fit when does chapter 7 fit before or after chapter 6, because it seems like it's happening before, but it's coming after, I'm just trying to go through it and go, rather than me trying to give you a nice little neat methodical timeline that's probably wrong, is just to give you a nice overview of what to look for that's very practical so as you read it, you're understanding. So whether something's coming three years down the road or something's happening at present, I can go, oh, I remember where that is. So that's just a thought for you. Um, I think I would do injustice to try to put it on a timeline and probably be wrong anyway. So let's take chapter 7 because as I've prayed over it, it's probably been the chapter I've uh, kind of dreaded the most, I would say, because this chapter always kept me thinking that maybe, maybe the church isn't raptured. Because what I read there is he said, I saw all these people who were around and under the throne or standing around the altar, verse 9, a great multitude. And he says this great multitude are the ones that came through the great tribulation. He said, you know who they are. He said, they're the ones, verse 14, who've come out of the great tribulation. In other words, it's going to be such severe persecution. And so most people who espouse to that post-trib, mid-trib, refer to chapter 7 as that moment of time proving that the church must be here if there's all these believing people in Christ that are beheaded. And so that is a good point. As you read it, you would just naturally assume that those in verse 9 are the church. Those are Christians. And the church hasn't been raptured because it's still talking about these saints that are beheaded. And so therefore that must be us. You're going to go through it. You'll be beheaded. It's the only way to get through it. Uh, as a matter of fact, the only way you make it is to die. There is no other way to get through it except death. So it's a morbid thought. Could be true. But I have tried to build a premise that I believe the church is removed. I feel like I've done a good job with that. But I want to try to answer then who are these people? 
And can we know for sure or at least speculate in a scriptural way? So let's answer the question, how do people get born again or come to know Jesus if the church is gone? Hebrews 1.4, there's going to be a lot of scripture coming, so I need you to just write them down. You can study them later. The first scripture, and we read it in Revelation 7.1, and I saw the four angels, is this misnomer that God doesn't use angels anymore. God still uses angels. Come on, somebody. He's been using angels from the get-go. And to think that he's just quit now is silly. There's no biblical proof that angels don't still exist now. And what I would like to say, this is for your own study, I don't believe angels are the ones that have wings. Those are cherubim and seraphim. Angels are only servants. They're spirits sent to care for people who will inherit salvation. One version says they're ministering spirits. The Bible also says I could entertain one and not even know it. Yeah. Holy Lord. Well, if they, have, if they have wings, which is what we teach, all angels have wings, and the cherubim and seraphim do, but I can't find anywhere in Scripture where angels have wings. Angels are spirits sent out by God to serve God's people and to serve God's kingdom. And if, now just go with me. And, and you may, if you watch Marvel comic, this is an easy flip for you. If angels have wings, but I could entertain one without knowing it's an angel, that means they're shapeshifters. And I just don't see shapeshifting in God's kingdom. Right? So one minute he's got wings in the eternal realm, but then he shows up in my realm and he looks like me. So I have to believe that angels in some weird way look very similar to humans. I think they genuinely do. I, I think they just have this way that they look like us, uh, different than us because we're in the image of God, but I still feel like that there's something about them that was in the beginning shaped, uh, even fashioned, in a way that would have such an appearance that one of them could show up on planet earth and talk to me and I not even know it's an angel. So, and I, I could, I don't have time to t teach on a theology of angels, but I have a litany of stories and experiences of interactions of other people and even myself with what I believe genuinely was an angel. So I'm not going to go there, but I don't ever mind eating tacos and talking about it with you. Genesis 24, 40, he responded, The Lord in whose presence I have lived will send his angel with you. This is when uh, Abraham was sending uh, the, his servant to go find a wife for his son. He'll send his angel with you and will make your mission successful. So even in the Old Testament, angels were part of helping God's mission become successful. And I believe God's still using them today. I, I go back to chapter 2 and 3, to the angel at the church of, to the angel at the church of. I think God's still using angels today. It's weird how humans believe in everything else weirdly demonic, but when you throw an angel in there, it's like, yeah, I just don't know, man. But, but they're real. Exodus 23, 20, see, I'm sending an angel before you to protect you on your journey and lead you safely to the place I have prepared for you. 
This is going to show up in the book of Revelation as God begins to work with the 144,000 to lead them into a place of safety while the Antichrist is trying to annihilate all of them. But at least we read in the book of Exodus that God is using angels. He uses them to lead his people. He uses them to protect his people. He uses them to carry out his mission. Psalm 91.11, man, if you're a believer, you know this one. For he will give his angels charge over you to protect you wherever you go. Oh, we love that one. He will give his angels charge right now. And this is weird, but right now I genuinely believe that you have been given angels by God who help carry out God's mission in your life. He hasn't just left you here alone. He's given you the spirit, but more than the spirit as well, he, I believe that he's given you angels that will watch over you, camp round about you, protect you, work for you, help you accomplish God's mission. Uh, I'll, I'll give you a quick story of a lady years ago. Uh, her name was Sister Hood. She was riding down the road. She noticed a wreck. She was in her 70s at that time. Uh, she noticed the wreck. The car had pinned the person. She got out of the car. She saw the person was going to die. And uh, her own testimony was, I felt as if the spirit of Samson came upon me. And she reached down, lifted the car, drug the guy out, got him to a house, called an ambulance, rode to the hospital, and led him to Jesus Christ. Come on, somebody. I mean, that's a 70-year-old woman. There wasn't Facebook and Instagram back then, but testimonies of the Lord working. I, and my, my issue here is I think we're so advanced as Americans, we really don't need angels. We just need Google. <laughs> Psalm 103:21. Yes, praise the Lord, you armies of angels who serve him and do his will. There's a whole army of them that are going to do his will. It's not just a few little weak, measly fellas up there going, I don't even know what to do. There's a whole army of them that will be commissioned by God to go carry out. So just to help you a little bit, just understand, though the church is important and you're different and you're unique and you're a holy nation, you're not the only group of people that are working on planet Earth. There are angels that are, now watch, that have been sent to help you carry out the mission of God. And they'll do that for you. Matthew 4.11, then the devil went away. And the angels came and took care of Jesus. That just blows my theology out of the water. How could the Son of God need an angel to help him? You would think nobody, if anybody didn't need an angel, it would be Jesus. Come on, he's the Son of the living God. Why would he, can't he just use his Jesus magic? But this would just help you out. If the father felt like the son could use a hookup with an angel, help me then. Help me out. Send me one or five of them. That I would be so arrogant to think that Jesus could use a few, but I never even think about them. That I'm so religiously dogmatic in my uh, denominational theology that I don't think I need them when the Son of God that saved me needed help. I'll take all the help I can get. Send me about 10 of them. Matthew 13, 41. Now we start getting close to the revelation. For Jesus himself teaching says, the Son of Man will do what? Send his angels. And they will remove from his kingdom everything that causes sin. 
Come on, this is even Jesus telling us in the book of Revelation, I'm going to use angels. In the end, they will remove everything that causes sin in my kingdom. I'm going to use them for my glory. Lucifer just thought he led a group of them away to do his, but I'm still going to use them. Matthew 13, 49, this is the way it will be in the end of the world. The angels will come and separate the wicked people from the righteous. Holy smoke. That, uh, I guess we could go home. (laughs) At the end of the world, I'm going to use my angels. And you think you'll get away with it. You think you'll be able to, no, no, they're going to come and separate the godly from the ungodly. I'm going to use them for my kingdom. Hebrews chapter 2. For the message God delivered through who? All right, now just go with me here. I don't think this is a big stretch, but you may. If the Son of God and God is never changing, the same yesterday, today, and how often? If He used angels yesterday, today, could He keep using them forever? All right, now if He used angels to deliver a message... Way back when, could he possibly, through his eternal power, maybe just might, stir him up to do it again? I'm just going to go with yes. I'm going to go out on a limb and say, probably so. So, what makes us think we can escape if we ignore such great salvation that was first announced by the Lord Jesus himself, and then, watch, delivered to us? There's that shifting I'm using angels. I've been using angels. I used angels all through the Old Testament to carry my message, to help my people. But now that I've saved a group of people called my body, my church, the message now that used to come through angels is going to come through them. And I'm going to work a period of time where the message no longer comes through angels, but it comes through my kids and my sons and my daughters. But I watch, I will still send the angels to help them in that mission. Now watch, just so we're clear. Just because I have been given that duty doesn't negate that God would now never use an angel. Because there's some people that believe he won't ever use one. We argued this day and night in grad school. Well, what about the little pygmy in the bush that's never heard about God? Will he go to hell if we don't take a mission trip down there and save him? There's a whole group of people, yes, he goes to hell if you don't go, which really helps raise mission money. (laughs) My thought was, yes, we need to go because it's ludicrous to think that God's going to take it off me and just use an angel But it also makes me understand that God loves that person so much that if I can't get there in time, that he could still send an angel or a dream or a bush or a dog or a raven or an octopus or a shark or a whale or a rock or a tree or a banana or a orangutan. He's God. (laughs) And he loves that person so much that he doesn't just give me a way out But if I don't have time to get there, there's a reason I couldn't. And God so loves the world that he loves that person. It doesn't really stretch my brain enough to go, God just couldn't show up in a donkey and go, Jesus loves you. Or give it, that sounded more like a goat, but uh, I'm not very good at that. Next one, Revelation 14. 
Now this just makes it clear. I don't know how we miss it. And I saw another angel flying through the sky. We're in Revelation now. Carrying what? And what's he doing with it? Proclaiming to people who belong to the world, to every tribe, nation, language, and people. And then even tells us what he's preaching so we don't think it's a fable or an allegory. The angel says, fear God. Give glory to him for the time has come when he'll sit and judge. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all the springs of water. So when somebody says, well, if the church is out out of here, how, how do they get saved? Just roll over to this one. There will be an angel. Well, he doesn't have wings. Right. Just checking. There will be an angel that will carry the everlasting gospel. I, I would just encourage you, don't try to complicate it too much. Because I've had people complicate it. Well, he may preach it, but it doesn't mean they get saved. I mean, I don't know about all that. But I know God loves people so much that if he does take the church out, which seems unfair... He's still going to deal with the Jews and the Gentiles and they still get an opportunity to get saved and come to his righteousness because he cares so much for them that he'll use angels once we're out of here. So here's the thought. This is on your thing. God will use angels to spread his message of the gospel of Jesus. I feel like I gave you enough scripture to prove that. So it wasn't just a wing and a prayer and a hop and a skip. But God's not done. As I told you, not only does God care about the church, He cares about the Jews and He cares about all others we would call Gentiles. He cares so much for them that I believe He's going to use angels to spread the gospel because He wants all to come to Him. He wants all to repent. And even though the body has been taken up, the church has been taken up to be with Him, I feel like I've done a good job telling you why I believe that. He's, come, he's brought the body unto him. It does not relegate that he's given up hope for everybody else. He so passionately loves people that even when he removes us from his wrath that is coming, he still adores the people that are left. And he's not going to leave them without hope. As we go through it, you'll see that all God is trying to do to bring hope, they still hate Him, they still reject Him, they still refuse to repent. But I I at least believe God cares enough to give them that. Let's look now at the 144,000. Who are this group of 144,000? Well, right off the bat, uh, Jehovah Witnesses. That's why, I'm not even being funny, you're laughing because we all know it. They are the denomination that believe that from the time of Jesus' resurrection till the present day He returns, only 144,000 true believers will make it. The odds that we are going to make it in this is really low. But that's kind of their doctrine and that's why by doing good works, by riding a bicycle by knocking on doors, by sharing the faith, they may get in. Good luck if you do. You don't ever know. 
And it would really discourage me that in 2,000 years there hadn't been 144,000 true believers. So I'd kind of feel like I got the raw end of the stick. There's a lot more groups. There's, I, I couldn't pronounce it, so I won't even put it up. But there's a group in Russia that is a Christian group that believes they are the 144,000. God has chosen them, and they're very distinct, and they, they are the 140, and they're existing right now. And there's other segments of religion that all claim they are the 144,000. So at least we can know that there's groups of humans out there that go, I'm part of that 144,000. So let's just tear it apart and see. Secondly, there's a group of people that believe it's the church. The 144,000 represents the church. We'll go through it and show it. And then the third option, which is what I believe, is the Jews. Well, it's pretty clear, I think it's clear, that verse 5 on pretty much tells you. I don't know how I could be riding a bicycle thinking it's me if I'm not a Jew. If I, I guess if my name was, you know, you know, Klein or something like that, I might go, well, I may have hope. But, but I'm an Evans. I came from England. I'm not a Jew. So therefore, I just have to check off because verse 5 says, of the tribe of Judah. So all of the 144,000 come out of the tribes of Israel. So that, watch, if you're not a Jew right now, meaning Hebrew background, trace your heritage back to the Israelite heritage, you ain't one of these people. <laughs> you're not one of them. You can check your name off. But remember, who does God have to finish? There are three groups, the church... The Jews and the Gentiles. I believe they're the Jews. Turn, if you will, to Revelation chapter 14. Uh, I just read it in chapter 7, so I won't belabor that reading. But let's read Revelation 14 because they are going to show up later. Seven books down, seven chapters down the road, they will show up. We'll talk a little more about it this time. I looked and behold a lamb standing on Mount Zion, meaning in Jerusalem. And with him were 144,000 having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters and the voice of a loud thunder. And I heard a sound of a harp. They sang a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures, the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who were redeemed for the earth. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. So that means if you've had sex, if you've been married, you're not one of them either. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These are the redeemed from among men, being the first fruits of God and to the Lamb. Here's the definition. The 144,000 are male virgin Jews, not Gentiles. We'll talk more about it later. Sealed from the 12 tribes of Israel and presented as a gift from God the Father to the Lamb of God, Jesus. God made a promise to them back at Abraham, and He shows up and He puts a seal on their head because He's not going to let the devil have them. They're going to be sovereignly protected. They're going to be sovereignly watched over. They're going to be sovereignly led. 
And God is going to work a work among them supernaturally, what he's going to use them for. The 144,000, this is where it gets really interesting. Everything that God has done to bring salvation to humanity has come through the Jews. Israel. I don't know if uh, Joe Biden will get elected, you know, I'm, I'm unsure. And I don't know where you fall with President Trump, that's your deal. But I cannot but help that President Trump has worked overtime for the Jewish nation. He's, he's moved our embassy to Jerusalem. He's, he's had, I think, five, almost seven peace deals with Middle Eastern countries working to honor. So in a weird way, I know he, he may tweet weird, and I know me, we may have all these weird things about him. Depending, it just really depends on which news agency you watch. He's either Jesus or the Antichrist. You just got to pick a news channel. And so if you're, if you're news channel Fox, he's your savior. If you're news channel everybody else, get him out. He's a hellacious, terrible human being. But one thing's for sure, no matter which news channel you watch, God is marking down a man, whether he's godly or not, is marking down a man who has worked overtime for his kids. There's no denying the fact that the President of the United States at this general juncture has done more for the nation of Israel than any other president that's ever sat in Washington. Now, they may vote him out, but God will never forget it. So there's a supernatural thing. And here's what's so weird. This little, remember the little group of uh, about the side of Rhode Island when I showed you the map, that little bitty thing called Israel. The entire world is fighting over a piece of land about the size of Rhode Island. Why? And this, this may, I don't know where you fall in this. All salvation has come to you through the Jews. Through the Jews. I'll read some scripture to you. You can write this down. It's not on your worksheet. didn't have room, but... The 144,000, just showing you how God has always used Jews. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were the beginning of it all. The nation of Israel called the Jews. The judges were Jews. Kings were Jews. The entire system of worship was Jewish. Jesus was a Jew. The apostles were Jews. And salvation is of the Jews. I'm telling you, what God starts, He finishes. So I know right now we feel very important. We're the church, the church of the living God. Nobody touches us. But when God's done with you, don't you ever think you're more important than the Jews. You came out of it. You're going to be part of their family. You're grafted into their promises. And when we're in the millennial kingdom, we'll talk about this, there's still very much Jewish stuff going on. You got grafted into their family. You weren't part of the family. You got grafted in. Into a Jewish family. All right? So, ere we think that once the church is gone, all hell breaks loose, God's still working a plan with His people. And this Jewish plan, you got sucked into it in a weird way. I'll read some scriptures to you. Scripture 1, John 4, 22, Jesus, you Samaritans know very little about the one you worship. While we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. You're here today because of the Jewish nation of Israel. It's why when you pray for them and you bless them, God will bless you. 
I don't know about President Trump and all of his quirks in and out, but I know this, we will be blessed because of what he did. And if the incoming president anywhere down the road does anything anti them, buckle up. You may think we're some Christian nation, but when a Christian nation begins to oust the people of God, the Jewish nation, and we begin to pull back from them and disdain who they are, you better buckle up because it doesn't go well for anybody who comes against that little group of people called the Jews. Do your research. Every nation that tries to come against them, weird things happen. I mean, just mind-blowing. Like, dear God, this is something like a Batman. It's because God is fighting for his people. You are his church, grafted into the family. This is his people. So, Romans 11, talking about predestination for those of you that love that. If you're Presbyterian, you love that God picked you. You didn't pick him. Many of the people of Israel are now enemies of the good news and the benefit, and this benefits you Gentiles. So the very fact that Israel rejected him and killed him was to your benefit. And here's what's weird. You had zero hope. You, I don't know where you fall here, you were not even going to be counted as part of the salvation on the cross, but that the Jews rejected him, God decided to pull you into the process. Why? To make them jealous. That almost sounds stupid. I thought he saved me because he loved me. Well, yes, he loves you. But he gave you an opportunity to be born again to make the kids that rejected him jealous. I want them, my family and children, to see they have turned from me, but in the grace that I show you to bring you into my family will cause them to become jealous of the very love and the grace that I bestowed upon you in hopes to turn them back to me. It's as if God's working a chess game here. Revelation 11, 30 and 31. Once you Gentiles were rebels against God, but when the people of Israel rebelled against him, God was merciful to you instead. Come on, somebody. Thank you, Lord. I mean, just thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm not here to debate theology with you and act like God didn't love us or care. I just am trying to stir you to see God is passionately in love with the Jews. He's going to save them and redeem them and we got grafted into something that wasn't even ours to get grafted into. This is why I think it's Ephesians will use words like you have been adopted. You were not even my own kids, but I adopted you as my children. You are not my real children, you are my adopted children. My real children are the Jews. They rejected me. I adopted you. I'm making them jealous through you. Ephesians 2.12. In those days you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from the citizenship of the people of Israel. In other words, God didn't even count you as family. You didn't even know the covenant promises God made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. You didn't even have God. God didn't pick you. God picked the Jews. 
You got in by mercy. Don't you ever think you earned it. You got in by sheer mercy and grace alone. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourself. It is a gift of God and not of your works lest you start boasting that you deserved me to love you. You were without hope. You were without me. You didn't have my covenant. You weren't part of my family. I don't even know. You were hopeless. But because these little rebellious, snot-nosed children of mine rebelled against me and crucified me when I came to be their Messiah, come on in, children. There's plenty of room. Holy Lord, it makes me appreciate him even more. Well, he adopted me. I'm part of the citizenship. It's a weird thing. I don't have time to teach it, but it is a weird thing. Ephesians 2, 19 and 20. So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You're a citizen along with all of God's holy people. You're members of God's family now together We are his house built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and the cornerstone is Jesus Christ himself. The thought. The 144,000, which are Jews, will serve as God's Jewish remnant to continue the message of the gospel of salvation to the Gentile nations that remain on earth after the rapture of the church. How does God get his message out there? First through angels and next through this Jewish remnant. I believe he's going to use them. Salvation is of the Jews. He's going to use them. They will testify. They will proclaim the Messiahship of Jesus Christ to people who had no clue who he was. And they'll proclaim it. Because really the truth is, watch, the truth, if the church is gone, how does anybody even know to get saved? How does anybody even know who Jesus is if we're out of here? Well, I'm going to send them some angels to proclaim it. And then I'm going to use these 144,000 to go out and tell them I am the real Messiah. Now let's end by looking at the great multitude. Because this has been the crux all along. Who are these people? Are they the church? I'll go back and read it again if you'll turn back with me to Revelation chapter 7, so you can see it with your eyes. I just have a few scriptures. Now, where I'm going with this, uh, I'm, I'm not taking it as a stretch, and neither am I saying it's fact, okay? So I'm trying not to stretch something to make it fit, because I really don't care. I don't, have a, I don't have a dog in the hunt. But I also want to stretch your brain to at least think about it, okay? So I don't need you to go out the door and go, wow, that was great, I believe that. I just need you to go, hmm, I might need to think about that. Of, is this group of people, and I'll read it again, verse 9. And after these things, I looked, and what I'm about to read is going to be very critical to, to where I'm going. I saw a great multitude which no one could number of all the nations, tribe, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palm branches in their hands, crying, salvation belongs to the God. Now, verse 13, one of the elders answered and said to me, who are these arrayed in white robes and where did they come from? I love what he says. I said to him, sir, you know. So he said to me, these are the ones that have come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white with the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they're before the throne of God. They serve him day and night in his temple and he who sits on the throne will 
dwell among them. Um, I went back and read all the promises given to the seven churches. Here's just a thought for you. Of all the promises given to the seven churches that if you overcome, you'll get this. You'll get a name written. You'll get all this stuff. The one thing that was never promised to the church is to be led to living waters. So verse 17, it makes me think just by that that this might be a different group of people than the church uh, if, if God's offering them something different than he offered any of the seven churches. So if those of you want to study, that's just a thought. So here's the, the options we have. It's Jews. I think we've eliminated that because that was 144,000 prior. It's the church. It could be. I'm not saying it's not. I've tried to say why I think it's not. And I'm inclined to believe it's the Gentiles. So what I'm inclined to believe is this group of people who are called tribulation saints, who've had their heads chopped off for what they believe, who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, are not the church. I'm not saying that they're not saved. I'm just delineating between the church and those that are saved by faith, made righteous because of the blood. So I kind of lean that there's by faith, righteous blood, obedience, Old Testament. There's the church. By born again, the Holy Spirit lives in you and makes you new. And then there's the tribulation saints, meaning the Holy Spirit may not indwell them and live in them and make them part of the body because they're not going to be part of the body. They're going to be part of the righteous which is different, the righteous versus the body. The body of Jesus, which are saints, made righteous by believing in Jesus. And the reason that's different is when I believe the Spirit inhabits me, He lives and dwells in me, and I am alive. But I, I believe, just a thought, that this group could be righteous because of the blood. They believe in faith, but the Spirit may not dwell in them and make them part of the body. They'd still be righteous and get to enjoy eternal life. I'll tell you why I feel like I believe that. I don't really think it's a church, and here's why. All right, so I'll give you some thoughts. First scripture, Revelation 7, 9 and 10. And after these things I looked in a great multitude, which no one could number, and this is just a thought, not saying it's true, but it did quick my mind to think on this. Of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. It says standing before the throne, which makes me go back to Ephesians, that he says, I'll be seated with him. So it does make me think, well, there's a group in Ephesians that are the church that are seated, but these are standing. So that kind of made me go, well, I wonder if the seated people are the church and the standing people are the tribulation saints. So I'm already trying to work that out in my brain. I'll let you try to work it out. But these four words, nation, tribes, peoples, and tongue, took me to this scripture. Galatians 3.26 For you're all children of God through faith in Jesus Christ and all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. There's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. It, it really just kind of makes me scratch my head. Well, if you're telling me that in Christ there's no Jew or Gentile, male or female, then... Who is he looking at? Because he's definitely seeing people of other tribes, nations, peoples, and languages. But here it seems to be like, well, there's no race language. It's just one body. So if I'm going, well, there's no longer Jew or Gentile, but in Revelation I'm seeing all these nations of people, 
It makes me wonder, are the nations of people, the Gentile nations, and the body's different because the body is neither Jew, the body is neither Gentile, the body is neither male, the body is neither female, the body is the body of Jesus, but all these saints that are left that are not part of the body, they are of every tribe, language, people, and nation because they've not been baptized into the one body of Jesus Christ, which goes to Corinthians, for you have been baptized by the Spirit into a body. So it makes me wonder if these saints that are seen in Revelation 7 from every tribe, language, people, and nation are not saints that believe in the righteousness of Jesus, but they're different from the body because seemingly in the body we're more one than a bunch of different tribes and nations of people because those are the saints, but this is a holy nation, a holy priesthood, not tribes, nations, languages, and people. Revelation 7, 13 One of the 24 elders, this was interesting, asked me, I'd hate to flunk this test, who are the ones clothed in white and where did they come from? Well, it it would seem that if you're looking at this group of tribe, language, people, and nation, and he goes, well, who are they and where did the elder ask you? Who are they, where did they come from? And you look at them, and you don't know the answer because it's just oblivious. You're looking at tribes, languages. So it'd be very hard to answer, well, they're Chinese because there's also Japanese or they're, or they're Indian because there are also Europeans. So it becomes very difficult to say, well, who are they? Because it's just everybody lumped in a big group of everybody's. But he asked the weird question, who are they? And where do they come from? And so then he answers this, Sir, you know who they are. And he said, well, okay, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. So he defines it for me. I would think, this is just my logic, I would think if it was the church, he would have just said, oh, that's the church. Don't you know we just had a conversation several chapters ago with you from an angel about all the churches, and this is them. But he said, no, these are just those that have come out of the great tribulation, washed their robes, made them white. Therefore, they're before the throne of God. They serve him day and night in his temple. Well, that kind of tricked my thinking of, all right, they serve him day and night. But listen to what the Bible says about the church. They don't serve him day and night. He says in Revelation 3.12 that those that overcome are pillars in the temple. They're not just people that serve. They're pillars in the temple. Of my God. Now, here's where it gets really weird. This is Jesus talking to the church. Revelation 3. I will do what to them? Green. Right. Write on him what? And what else? And in the red at the bottom. So, this is Jesus talking to the church. And he's pretty clear. That if you'll overcome as the church, I'll make you a pillar and the pillar will be so clear, I'll write my name on you, I'll write the name of my God on you and I'll give you a brand new name but I'll write it on you. It just made me wonder that if the elder said, I see tribes, language, peoples, and nation, who are they? And I look down, it would seem to me if they were the church, I would know because the names would be written on their foreheads. I'm like, oh, that's easy because there's their name. You wrote it on their head right there. These are the children of God. These are the righteous. These are your church. These are the ones with a new name. 
But the very fact that to me, logically, if the elder says, who are they? And I go, you know, I don't know. I just see a group of people. And he goes, oh, I'll tell you all, they're tribulation saints. It makes me feel like that they're probably not the church because they don't have the name written on them yet. They, They don't have the name written on them. They're still righteous. God still counts them as righteous. But it just makes me wonder if I'm having to question who they are and he says pretty clearly, I'll write it on them. It would just make me wonder if this was a different group of people other than the church. I'll let you work it out over salsa and figure out what you believe. I've tried to lay it out this way. The church is one body and not a multitude of many races and nations. I'm sure we could debate that for hours. I don't mind doing it. I'm willing to be wrong, but it's my thought. The second, the church is a pillar in the temple of God and not a servant in the temple. Not saying we don't serve him, but we're seen as a pillar, a foundation. The third, the church has a name and is not unknown for it's written on them. I would have felt like John would have known it was the church because it already had a revelation about the churches and it already had what would promise to them So I'm kind of wondering if he's not looking at a group of people who are not a body, they're not a pillar, and they don't have the name. And and then the elder says, well, these are the tribulation saints. And again, I don't want you to go out and go, they'll never be part of the church. I don't know. I just tried to give it to you in a way to stretch your brain place. And the conclusion. This is my thought of chapter 7. The church's earthly work has been finished. But God will finish his work among the Jews and Gentiles, bringing salvation to the Jews by sealing the 144,000 and offer salvation to the Gentiles via the 144,000 and the angels. So that's kind of my conclusion of chapter 7, is not to really look at the you know, chronology of what's going on, but what I think could be happening And what I I, kind of have worked out may be going on. And again, as I say every week, I just lay that out there to you and let you kind of mull it over, give you something to study, and always love to talk about it. So let me pray for you, then Jennifer's going to come, give you a little update about leaving and what's coming this weekend. Father, thank you so much for the word we've heard tonight. Thank you for an opportunity to uh, gain at least a little greater insight than maybe what we had when we came in. We ask you to open our minds. We ask you to open our hearts. Let all this word find good ground. Lord, that which is meaningful to the kingdom, let it soak in. That which is not, let us chew the fat and spit out the bone. And let us grow from it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us on the Believer's Church YouTube channel. If you would like more information about Believer's Church, you can visit mybelieverschurch.com. If there is anything that you need prayer for, please email us at amen at mybelieverschurch.com. Be sure to check back next week for a brand new message.